The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. What a great reminder. All right, would you please take your copy of God's Word and open up to Isaiah 53. Do you consider it a great privilege to be with you here this evening, to be able to take some time to reflect on the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've titled the message this evening, The Necessity of the Crucifixion. And I did so because perhaps as we approach Good Friday, uh, we may be tempted to see this simply as a stepping stone to get us to Resurrection Sunday. Perhaps we've become so familiar with the truths of the cross, it no longer fills us with awe and wonder. We may even be tempted to question why this was necessary. Why did Christ need to die? Why couldn't God just forgive us if that's what he intended? Perhaps as we view the sufferings of Christ at Calvary in our hearts, we're tempted to respond as Peter did in Matthew 16, where he rebuked Christ, proclaiming, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So with that in mind, I believe it's appropriate for us to pause and contemplate all that was accomplished through Christ's substitutionary death, to marvel at the wonder of God's mercy and grace in sending his son to take on the punishment that we deserved. And to understand the necessity of the crucifixion and the dangers in discarding it. Understanding that without the cross of Christ, we would be truly lost. And as we come to Isaiah 53, we're reminded that what Christ endured was divinely ordained. It was foretold in inspired prophecy nearly 700 years before the crucifixion would take place. But uh, for us to truly appreciate and understand the, the weight of this text, I believe there's some things that we need to be reminded of first. And the first is, all mankind has sinned against God. From the fall in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent to take the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all of mankind has inherited a sin nature, and we, by that nature, have sinned against God. It says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. We are born into and enslaved by sin. We are spiritually dead. We are hostile toward God, and we cannot have a relationship with him. It says in Isaiah 59, verse 2, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Because God is holy, he will not tolerate sin in his presence, and therefore we are cut off from him. But not only are we cut off from God, we see that, second, because God is just, he must punish sin. Just as we would expect an earthly judge to punish someone who broke the law, God, if he is just, cannot overlook or pardon iniquity. He cannot pardon those who are guilty. If he did, he would cease to be God. It says in Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. So all of mankind, as sinners, stand guilty before a holy and just God and must be punished. We see this consistently in Scripture, that the punishment for sin is death. Romans 
for the wages of sin is death. Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is uh, the blood that makes atonement by the life. As we must understand that all sin must be paid for. So with this serving as the backdrop, I would invite you to follow along with me as I read our text this evening from Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. It says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. As we come to Isaiah 53, we see that this stands as one of four passages in Isaiah known as the servant songs. It's these passages that, that introduce and describe the servant of Yahweh, the, the promised Messiah. They're found in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and then our text here from Isaiah 53. And these passages detail the servant's service to God, his suffering for his people, and ultimately his exaltation. And Isaiah 53 stands, I believe, as one of the most amazing accounts in Scripture of the Messiah's substitutionary work and salvation. In fact, Isaiah 53 is most likely titled The Suffering Servant in Your Bibles, because as we've read, it details that all that God's servant endured. But who is the servant of God? If we look at the beginning of Isaiah 53, uh, in verses 1 and 2, we, we are given some description of who he is. It says, in, starting in verse 1, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. And what's interesting here is the metaphor that Isaiah uses to describe God's servants. He is described as a tender shoot and a root. We actually see Isaiah use the same metaphor in Isaiah 11, verse 1, describing the righteous branch of Jesse, the father of King David. It says in Isaiah 11:1, 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. We see that this man, the servant of God, is also this righteous branch who is promised to come. And as we look to the New Testament, we actually see the fulfillment of this person in Jesus Christ. In fact, hold your finger here for a moment and turn over to Acts 13. Acts 13, we see uh, this portion. Paul is giving just a brief description of of Israel's history. And uh, if you look at Acts 13, starting in verse 20, just listen to the language that, that Paul uses here. So starting in verse 20, it says, After these things he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet... Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Now listen here in verse 23. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. Turn back now to Isaiah 53. So who is the servant? 
This is Jesus Christ. This is the Son of God. This is the promised Messiah. So as we look to our text in verses 4 through 6, what is being described here is the prophecy of the suffering of Christ at the crucifixion. And it's in the truth of this passage that we will begin to see why we need the crucifixion. So for the rest of our time this evening, I want to look at three elements of Christ's suffering that show the necessity of the crucifixion. Three elements of Christ's suffering that show the necessity of the crucifixion. Number one, the source of Christ's suffering. We see this starting in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, for we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So in this verse, we actually see a connection back to the previous section. If you look up in Isaiah 53, verse 3, the servant of God here is described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But now as we look to verse 4, we see that those sorrows and the grief were not his own. He bore them. He carried them for someone else. And viewing those verbs, bore and carried, you'll notice that they're in the past tense. This is what's known in Hebrew as a prophetic perfect, a verb that is describing a future action with such assurance of its fulfillment that it's written in the past tense. The servant will bear these sorrows and will carry these griefs. In fact, as we looked uh, to the Gospel of Matthew, we see this very verse referenced in Matthew 8. It says, When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our affirmities and carried away our diseases. Now you may hear that, and and obviously you're able to tell that, that what is quoted here in Matthew is different than what we just read from Isaiah 53. Matthew uses the terms infirmities and diseases, while Isaiah uses sorrows and griefs. Well, in the Hebrew words here in Isaiah 53 for sorrows and griefs can actually be translated sicknesses and pains. And though, as we've said, we see the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy in the crucifixion of Christ, those reading this would have understood the connection. In fact, Hebrews, uh, for them, there was a direct correlation of sickness of the body as a consequence of sin. If you remember from Job... His friends, they saw this affliction and they assumed that he had must have done some egregious sin to bring about the wrath of God. It says in Job 4, 7, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? This is perhaps why we see the misunderstanding of the servant suffering at the end of verse 4. Look again, it says, Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Those looking upon the sufferings and afflictions of Christ at Calvary may have seen these and assumed that he was receiving this this wrath of God. He was being smitten of God, literally struck down by God because of sin in his life. However, as we come to verse 5 and as we've already read, though he was afflicted, though he was struck down by God, his suffering was not due to his own sin but to ours. Verse 5, it says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Remember, as I've already said, all mankind has sinned against God and stand condemned before him. And the payment for our sin is death. However, we see that because of the actions of God's servants, 
the punishment for our sin, for our transgression, for our iniquity has been placed on him. This is what's known as substitutionary atonement. Though we are the ones who have earned God's wrath due to our rebellious sin against him, Christ became our substitute, taking on the full wrath of God at the cross for the sins that he did not commit. And what's the result? Well, we see now our second element of Christ's suffering. Number two, the result of Christ's suffering. Look again at verse 5. It says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Isaiah gives two additional consequences here of the servant taking on these transgressions and iniquities along with their results. First, we see that the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. In the Hebrew, this is a phrase which is known as a construct chain. It literally means the punishment of our peace. So as we look to what Christ endured, it was a punishment that was designed for the purpose of securing our peace. So we see this as the first result of Christ's suffering is our peace with God. Because the punishment for our sins has been taken on by Christ, recipients of this can have a restored relationship with the Father. It says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But we see that not only are there relational benefits from what Christ has done and the sufferings that he bore, but we see that there are internal benefits as well. Continue on in verse 5. What does it say? By his scourging, we are healed. This word scourging brings to mind a severe wound or slash. We know that Jesus was scourged. Bob just read about it in our scripture reading for this evening. The scourging would have been lashes that Christ received across his back, leaving severe gashes and wounds in his flesh. This really gives us a graphic image of the physical pain that Christ had to endure. He was whipped, beaten, spit on, forced to wear a crown of thorns, and ultimately he died nailed to a wooden cross. But all of this is overshadowed by the fact that he had to endure the crushing weight of the wrath of the Father placed upon him. And what do we see as the result? Isaiah tells us that we are healed. Remember our natural condition. We are born into and enslaved by sin. We are spiritually dead. However, through Christ's death and substitutionary atonement, believers receive spiritual healing. We are brought to life. They're now dead to sin. They're free from its mastery over them. We see the same language in 1 Peter 2. It says in verse 24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And then also in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we see that through the crucifixion of Christ, there's been an exchange where he has taken on our punishment and we have received his righteousness, resulting in peace with the Father, spiritual healing, and freedom from sin. 
Finally, we look at the last element of Christ's suffering. Number three, the volitional nature of Christ's suffering. So follow along now as I read from uh, verse 6. It says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We're reminded again in the first half of verse 6 of the utter failure of mankind. Though in the immediate context this is referring to Israel, we understand that this prophecy points to all sinful man. And we see the extent of this failure. Isaiah says, all of us have strayed. Each of us has turned. You perhaps hear an echo of this in Romans 3.23, where Paul states, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's important to notice here that the two verbs used to describe the sheep's actions are active verbs. This is not something that's happening to the sheep, but this is something that they are choosing to do through their own volition. Likewise, we ourselves can blame no one for our sinful condition other than ourselves. This is a comprehensive failure of mankind to follow their shepherd. However, as we look at the end of verse 6 here, though we've been reminded of our own volition and rebelling against God, we see here God's volition in placing the punishment of this iniquity onto his servants. It says, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is amazing. We see here from Isaiah 53, 6 that the suffering that Christ was to endure as a substitutionary sacrifice was divinely ordained. The Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, sovereignly orchestrated the means by which salvation was to come to his people. And not only that, we look to the New Testament and the Gospel of John and we see that Christ willingly laid down his life. John 10, 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So we can't approach the crucifixion and think for some reason that Christ is lost. That somehow wicked men had overthrown the plans of God. No, this happened exactly as God ordained it to happen. Perhaps one final question we should ask is, who is the all here at the end of verse 6? Though we understand uh, at the beginning of verse 6 that all mankind has sinned, all have gone astray, all have fallen short of God's glory, who are the recipients of this atonement? Well, if you look down to verse 11, this would perhaps give us a clearer picture. It says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he, Yahweh, will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. So though we would say that Christ's work at Calvary was sufficient for all, it is applied only to those whom God has chosen. We see this confirmed in the New Testament. Again, in John 10, verses 14 and 15, Christ speak, speaking here says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then perhaps uh, one of the most well-known verses that describes this is Romans 8, 29, and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. 
This is why when we come to the Gospel of John in chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus proclaims, it is finished. There's nothing more that needs to be done or that can be done. Redemption has been accomplished. It has been won for God's people through Christ's blood. God's wrath has been satisfied. It has been paid in full at the cross. So how do we respond? How do we respond to these truths? Well, I would urge all of us to just stop and contemplate the cross of Christ often. If you're here tonight and you're a believer, this should fuel your worship. We reflect on the crucifixion to remember that though we were hopelessly lost in our sin, we were condemned before God, we deserved his judgment, Christ took on the full weight of that judgment at Calvary. He was our substitute. Reminded of the hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior. The lyric, lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. But if you're here tonight and you're not a believer, if you, if you haven't recognized that you're a sinner that is condemned before God, you are spiritually dead, you cannot save yourself. And if you haven't trusted in Christ as the only way to salvation, I would beg you to think about these things. Remember, as I mentioned before, God is a just judge and will not overlook sin. All sin must be punished and will be punished, either by Christ at Calvary or you for eternity. This is why we need the crucifixion. Because without it, we would be lost. Without it, there is no hope, there is no salvation. Without the crucifixion, there is no resurrection. So I'll finish with one final text this evening from Revelation 5. We get the glimpse into the throne room of God and we hear the, the myriads and thousands praising the Lamb and listen to their praises. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels among the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Father, that is, the, that is the cry of our heart. Father, as we reflect on the truths of the crucifixion, as we, as we look at all that Christ has accomplished as our substitutes, Father, we can react in no other way but worship. It is finished. Salvation is accomplished for, for your church, for those whom you have chosen. Father, it is done. There is nothing that we can do to earn it. Father, it is only through the blood of the Lamb that it can be done. So we stand now here as your redeemed, worshiping and praising the one who is on the throne and the Lamb. That all power and wisdom and blessing and honor, dominion be to you forever and ever. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan. 
where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.